Okay, today we have Sarah Constantine on our podcast. Sarah is someone that I met over a decade ago at an Overcoming Bias meetup in New York. She still lives in New York with her husband and two kids. She works at Nanotronics, and somehow she's never been on a podcast before, which to me seems like an oversight on the part of all these other people making podcasts. So we're excited to talk to her today. Thanks for coming on, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks, Debbie. Hello. Yeah, you talk about a lot of things online, and maybe one place to start is you've written recently about AI, and that's we, we tend to ask most of our guests about AI. It's a top discourse mm-hmm. subject, and there's been a lot coming out recently. Are you interested in outlining some of your views there? Yeah, sure. So I am pretty much on the AI is mostly a good thing side. On the AI is probably not on practical as all side. And mostly that comes down to being pretty near-term about how I think about it, looking at what kind of models we have and where do they, what do they seem to be capable of and and what kinds of improvements are we actually seeing? And in some ways that's very dramatic, obviously, and and very publicly so this year or last year. But then there are other things that are maybe a little subtler that are not being touched that I think would be necessary for the whole kill us all thing. Yeah. Can Um, you say what the subtler things would be? Yeah. I'm thinking of what you might call agency. The whole reason why you would worry about an AI in a way you wouldn't worry about any other dangerous piece of technology, any other computer program or large machine or something, is that if you try to turn it off, it might resist you. If you try to stop it, it might resist you. It, It might have an intention because if you have a big heavy machine, it could also kill you, and it could, uh, and uh, and it might also be very hard to stop in a certain sense. But it requires a lot of force to stop, or whatever. But there isn't a mind there trying to resist you, and the worry is always that would that would be true with artificial intelligence, and that's what I think has really not been done, uh, and what I think there's also is also still fairly missing is a lot of real world problem solving. If you try to do any kind of very simple practical world thing, fix a machine, you'll find unenumerated difficulties that weren't in the manual, that weren't. This is the real world versus the digital world. This involves uh, involves experimentation and feedback. I think the way humans do it is not that we come up with such a great model beforehand and then execute on it, but that there's always a world that we bump into. And when the model doesn't work, we don't just revise a one variable in the model and say, okay, bump that number up. But we might have to throw we might have to expand the whole thing. We might have to think about the whole thing differently. There's a flexibility that is allowed, particularly by empirical experimentation, which I think is hard to do in a game world. Hard to do if you don't have contact with stuff. Maybe even hard to do if you're not a if you're not a, I want to say a mortal being, maybe it's not mm. like that, but like, interesting. they're ultimately, if you get things, ultimately, ultimately, we're trained by evolution, right? You, if you, if, and we have evolved to have these things in our heads that can predict what happens before we do it, because instead of having evolution train our behaviors, we can do some of our training up here ourselves and have flexible behaviors, right? Okay. If you're too wrong up here, you will die and your wrongness will be a little selected out of the gene pool. 
if you good hearts a metric that actually isn't correlated with survival, there is a mechanism by which that goes away. And that's and with a in, a, in, in the world of a computer model, the mechanism by which the, a good hearted theory, a like wrong theory and a wrong reward model that doesn't correspond to reality. The, the way that goes away is that like some human user says, you know, I don't like this very much. I'm going to scrap this and change it. But there isn't, but that doesn't happen in training. That doesn't happen in your model architecture. That is out of model problems. Yeah. On that point, is it something like, you, you don't mean necessarily that like in training, let's say in an RL environment or something like that, that there's like, certain behaviors aren't selected, but rather like when you get out of that distribution, when you're like in the real world, the AI doesn't have some way to actually select away behaviors. Yeah. Even you can get unintended consequences in RL. They had the DeepMind had that whole selected, whole paper of selected examples of it was trained to do something and it cheats to win. Like with the thing that's supposed there's a, like a hand that's trying to grab a claw that's trying to grab something. And then it's instead trying to make it look to the human observer, like it's grabbing it without grabbing it, I think was one of these yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. It's one of those things where, you know, I, it happens. I'm not gonna, I'm actually uncertain. What is, how frequent is this really with RL systems? Is this, did they cherry pick this or does this happen all the time? But uh, even with nothing special RL systems that exist, clearly it's possible to get unintended consequences. That's what you said, not what you meant. And yet, if we're talking about really persistent in the world damage, not accidental damage, but like it meant to do it and it'll keep trying to do it even if you try to stop it. That that tends to, I think, require coping with unanticipated problems mm. and stuff that I would expect that, stuff that I would accept, expect the peer simulation without a bunch of experience experimenting the way we do. We, ha- we get years and years experimenting with the real world is is probably going to limit this. This is basically saying where my priors come from. This is not an empirical thing right. or whatever, but this is like, why does it not seem realistic that the AI is going to solve hard nanotechnology and then make great goo that takes over planet Earth? Solve nanotechnology is a science problem. There's a bunch of experiments. Mm-hmm. You have to run them and things will go wrong. And Maybe you can figure out a better way to run them faster than people do. But this is, it's, the, it's a domain where you're trying to be, to take the world to a place that's never been before. And you're doing things that are very messy whenever in the real world anyone tries to do them. So this is, this is where it starts to seem, no, we're not, we're not headed in that direction. We're headed towards things like, we're headed towards some very interesting and destabilizing stuff. We're headed towards, apparently now you can come up with algorithms that have been included in the, in, in the next version of the C language because they're more efficient than we're just... Oh, I saw that. Yeah, uh, compiler optimization. This came from DeepMind, right? So like stuff that's out, definitely not what the past 50 years of AI have been capable of. This is like very new. We are not used to automating this stuff. Um, okay, so can I try to summarize maybe some of the things you said? Yeah. Okay, so one thing you're saying that I think probably a lot of people broadly agree on is that the current systems aren't very agentic, right? Yeah. And then another thing you're saying is that you're skeptical that the current architecture or something, like you're skeptical that agency in a real way is coming anytime soon. Yeah. I think because there's some way that you, that evolution has put this drive in us for survival, but then also that ends up in us experimenting and trying things and getting feedback. And you don't really think we're on track to having that sort of agency type drive 
in the AIs for now. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think one thing is like, if you wanted to do something that, that looked like that, that looked like that you might have something that has a robot and is experimenting or whatever. And that's mm-hmm. something that's very expensive. And it's, you could break the robot, you could do damage to something. They don't like to right. have a lot of training time on a robot. They like to do as much assimilation as they can. I am not seeing the kinds of investment in that kind of training anywhere that would correlate with seeing the products that come out of it come, out, come in a couple of years. And you also think it's not going to sneak up on us, that type of behavior, because you imagine it'll be time consuming and expensive to create it. Is that roughly right? I think it's, yeah, and probably not necessary, not like on the economic optimal path towards reaping the gains from our current era of AI progress. Interesting. Could you say a bit more on that? Because my immediate, like, my prior belief would be like, wow, robotics is this field that would be so economically rewarded for someone who could unlock it. But plausibly, that's, it's like too difficult or it's not like in the current bubble. One a lot of thing, one thing that a lot of people don't know, maybe you're familiar, but maybe your audience isn't about robotics, is yes, robotics uses computers, but no, robotics does not teach the robots how to move machine learning style from scratch. They use a lot of machine learning on the perception side to be like, here's a camera image. Now let's mm-hmm. break it down into objects or other kinds of sensor modalities. And then they path plan their way through the world using algorithms. The humans come up with. Yeah, the humans come up with. Yeah. And there's a recent paper where there's a where there's a robot that learned to walk from scratch. That's a bit of an update. It's not something you, that, that can't be done, and it's not something that a priori I would have thought couldn't be done. But it's something that I don't see the industrial robotics world being motivated by, in part because their baseline, they have pretty tight cost requirements. An industrial robot mm-hmm. to be five figures. They, sorry, what was that? Last? You said five, five figures five, and not more. Five figures. Uh, a machine shop user or something like that has one of those, one of those universal pick and place robot arms, and it's a universal thing. You write a program to have it do a variety of tasks, but there's some tasks which apparently, like painting, is very hard that that are tricky. So mm-hmm. There's some things that are entirely out of reach, and until now, until I may be changing with some of these new models with these new, much more efficient models. But even deep learning is often cost prohibitive and they're using vanilla 1970s CV. They, getting into industrial robotics is tight, tighter than you realize and more more, more old fashioned than you realize. That's not, and Boston Dynamics, those are hard-coded robots. They they are. That's what people always say about the Boston Dynamics. They have these really cool demos, but then they can't really do all the things that it seems like they might be able to do based on these demos. I'm not even Because they have a lot of hard... I'm not even saying that they're not that they don't perform like the demos. I'm saying okay. they didn't learn to do that. Their movement sequence is hard-coded. Yeah. They didn't evolve this. So I think what I mean is while they can do what they're doing in the demos, it might not generalize as much as people might think if they're mm. imagining that they learned it. So, yeah. But what I'm thinking is like there's a huge run, there's a huge straightaway right now in the world of AI of all the things that it sure looks like you ought to be able to automate from here. Automate various kinds of text generation, automate right. various kinds of code generation, automate image generation, do all the grunt work in your animation and your video games via AI. Do, I once saw an additional chemist talk about, to be very skeptical of AI, I explain how unimpressive it is that it did every step in his two-week flow ch- <laughs> workflow 
automatically and immediately. And anyone could do that. You just look it up in these databases and you make these comparisons and calculations. And like but it did it for you. Right. And it's new and it's, yeah. And to that point, if you're talking about, about the biotech world, okay, you can look at a bunch of chemical structures. You can see which ones, when you can make computational predictions of various kinds of behavior that are in the data sets and you can interpolate between data points. And you can, you can rule out things that would on, on copy, computable heuristics make bad drugs. Okay, cool. Now you still have to do experiments. We haven't gotten so good at predictions that the experiments are obviated. You have saved two weeks out of the medicinal chemist's life, which is a big academic deal. But when people say, and then the AI will make our medicines for us, it's like, not on this planet. Not, no. So there's this, at least one clear choke point that prevents kind of total automation, which is the interface with the real world. That part is not looking like it's going to be automated anytime soon. Yeah, it gets hard. And that's actually where nanotronic works. So this is not me doing cool. a... I, acting as a spokesman for the company. Would love to hear more. I'm, yeah, yeah uh, please tell us. Invisible lawyers out there. I'm speaking for myself. But so nanotronics is where I work. And we started out about 12 years ago and doing inspe making inspection machines for the semiconductor business. So our founder, Matthew, is a physicist. And he, while he was an academic, came up with some clever ideas for more, for basically doing more with less data computationally, mm -hmm. microscopic images. And of course, in semiconductors, tiny defects can ruin a wafer, can ruin your device. So they care a lot about inspection. They inspect everything optically, microscopically. Mm -hmm. Some things are inspected at insanely tiny nanometer scales, but we can do, but, but we can detect defects with image processing, machine learning, that typically you need a much more powerful machine, like a room-sized machine, to detect when they're going pixel by pixel of, is this pixel the wrong color? If you can detect pattern, you don't need quite so much hardware horsepower. You can do more. Interesting. We did this and then we noticed over time, founders noticed over time that what they were doing was not merely saying good, bad on the production line or what they, they were noticing where are the defects and what does that say about what things are going wrong in your process and what should you do different next time? So the idea was to close the loop and that's where our process control stuff came out of. We have AI process control. Process control is the term of art in manufacturing for when you have a mostly automated process. Think of like a chemical plant, prototypically. Things are flowing in and out of tubes. You've got machines and so on. You want to get the best quality, the best efficiency out of that. And there are a bunch of settings on things. And there are a bunch of computer-controlled trajectories of things are heating up and cooling down and spraying and going across lines and so on. And there's a lot of sensors and there's, and what we're doing is taking all the sensors in and we are developing a model of the entire process as it goes and predict, predicting its tra trajectory over time, noticing when things are not as we predict them and saying, Hey, it's getting weird as a warning mm. flag of maybe it's doing something it shouldn't. We are, we're predicting KPIs, performance indicators, things like quality metrics or uptime or yield, which is the percent of what you make that is good enough to ship. And we're able to say, things look like they're about to get worse. And we're also able to say, hey, looks like maybe you should nudge this in a different direction if you don't want your metrics to go in the wrong direction. 
so that's the story of what we're trying to do here. And it is right at that intersection of we have models, but we're also trying to do something in the world of atoms. And that's good and bad. The good part is nobody else is trying to do it because it's a real schlep. Because you have weird noisy data. You get, and, and because, because there's also less tolerance for mistakes in a situation where if you have the machine run your factory and it runs it wrong, you've got people in there who get hurt. It's not like it gives the, right, the wrong answer in a text box. The, the very mundane kind of AI risk of you don't want to make an oopsie whoopsie and make something explode is something we have to keep in mind. But where it gets interesting is that what we see a lot of is while the world is full of people who have great theoretical models, the great physics models of how things are supposed to be, there's a lot of things where, no, they really don't. There's a lot of mm. reactors where things are being heated up and having complex chemistry and turbulence and your model of how it's supposed to be and what your sensors say it is are not the same. And where going machine learning style, going, we don't have, we, we don't, we don't know how it's supposed to work, but give mm -hmm. enough data and we'll give you a shape of how it does work is pretty fruitful. But yeah. Um, and those machine learning models, would you say... I don't know if I can ask this correctly, but do you think they have real insight into mechanistically what's going on or just some predictive power heuristically? So you can, it depends on what you mean by they. We've been able to pick out not only things got weird, but here's a logical explanation for why. Because okay. you can look into, like sensors have labels. They have human interpretable labels usually. And you can look into, okay, these sensors went haywire all at once. And that's consistent with this kind of thing going wrong. That hypothesis generation, though, that's happening on the human side. It's not something where there's like models that you expect the machine learning model to have necessarily that are generating those explanations. No, sorry, no. It is not at all hard to imagine how you could do something analogous to the mechanistic interpretability stuff that there have been papers about where you can, where you can say, okay, which sensors are responsible for this? The, this, this signal going weird, that's easy or even try to do some kind of statistical proxy for causality. This thing seems to be upstream of these other things. Like you can build in interpretability where the user or the person analyzing the data output has to do less and less over time. And I think- And do you expect that to happen? Do you expect that to be pretty useful economically? Yes. Yeah, okay. because the more you see of other people's manufacturing processes, the more you realize things going wrong is normal. Things going wrong mm -hmm. is normal at household name companies. Catastrophic, how are we going to deal with this problem? Not to tell, I, I can't tell, tell tales out of school, but like we hear about things where like, oh, this seems, it, they're famous. We've all, we all depend on their stuff. And things are going very wrong sometimes. Things go wrong there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This matches my experience working in large big tech companies where we were always like, wow, everything feels held together by duct tape here. And <laughs> I guess that must mean th th there's some fantastical company out there that maybe they're just really far more competent and it's like they have it all working and it's not blowing up, but we haven't found them yet. And it's not, I've also met a lot of really competent people. It's not really, oh, someone did some obviously stupid thing. A fair amount of crisis happens. And this makes sense for some views on AI, like just, I don't make the kind of obvious connection back if... The world is so often out of distribution when there's so often these things blowing up. It's, yeah, yeah, I can't, at least in the current stage, is too fragile to just start running wild. In 
it's very occasionally I see somebody who's not in in manufacturing world or, or anything like that be like, why doesn't why doesn't it just work out of the box? Somebody, yeah. some Twitter commenter, TSMC buys all their machines from from other companies. So why do they have such a high valuation? Don't they just un- unbox the machines and turn them on, and then the semiconductor devices come out? No, right. <laughs> that does not work. There's unfortunately more to it than that. Yeah, <laughs> they get paid the big bucks because. There is a an art and a science to it. Yeah, I keep thinking there's an old post of John Salvatier's called "Reality Has a Surprising yeah. Amount of Detail," which keeps coming to mind when you're saying all these things. And that was about, I think, installing. Yeah, it was like some carpentry stuff, yeah. which I don't know. This maybe probably sim. It's got to be simpler than industrial manufacturing, but even it has got to be simpler than industrial manufacturing, and it's still more complicated than you think if you haven't done it. Everything is more complicated than you think. If you haven't done it, as I find every time I try to do a project at home, I'm like, I will carve a jack-o'-lantern for Halloween. That can't possibly go wrong. Yes, yes. I've, Definitely. I've had that and, happen and too. It's interesting that you're pointing out the way in which reality has so much more detail than we naively expect in our very simple models, because this is both, it feels like to me an argument for like why AGI or powerful effects from AI might be less likely in the near term than certain proponents believe. At the same time, it also, this is like a common feature of certain arguments from people more in the AI doom camp around the difficulty of controlling powerful AIs, where because reality has so much detail, you can't just specify, do the right thing. I'm curious if that factors into your views on this as well. Is it mostly like you're skeptical that we're like close to AI? But the AI control is still like a very difficult oh, hard yeah. problem or something else. Okay. I wonder 100% whether that AI control is hard. All of this. We'll just get the AIs to vote with each other. Or we'll just <laughs> get the AI to evaluate its own output and see if it's good or not. Or we'll ask the mm. AI to give us a plan for alignment. We'll ask ChatGPT to give us a plan for alignment. No, you won't. <laughs> that seems hard to you for similar reasons to why all the other things seem hard. Yeah, it seems even obviously more hard, even obviously harder. I'm like, I like ChatGPT. I use it. I've tried doing math with ChatGPT. ChatGPT is not good at math. Every couple of steps, it will give me like an obvious logic fail, which is not necessarily mean that it's not useful. It can be cool to have a little conversation partner slash rubber duck that is that does make mistakes. If you expect that, going yeah. but solve a unknown to humans problem with, no, I'm not one of these people who thinks that machines inherently can't reason or something like that. I'm not Searle. Um, probably, I probably lean towards anything that, that, that an organism's brain can do. You could in principle run on silica. I, uh, the functionalist position yeah. is pretty common among people we talk to. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess two two questions I have. One would be, what are some things that you think, do you want to make any predictions about what we will see in AI in the next few years? And then another one is something like, is there a point where if you saw that, you'd be like, okay, now I'm worried? So I haven't really come up with a, so I have a, I wrote a piece for Asterisk Mag that's coming out, the next one on AI. Mm. Okay. I tried to look into hardware stuff and memory wall stuff and Moore's Law stuff. So we're looking at 2027 is one consensus. End of Moore's Law can't actually make the, can't actually make transistors smaller. And then there's a lot of work being done to evolve in other directions that will keep improving computer performance in other directions that has to do 
with stacking things higher. If you can't, if you can't make them denser, you can put more layers or things that have to do with going away from the transistor, from the standard transistor architecture altogether and do you know, other kinds of elements. And there's obviously purely algorithmic improvements in efficiency. So you don't, so that you can get the same kind of performance out of better algorithms or better or special purpose hardware that's designed to do exactly this kind of AI or whatever. But it does look like there may be a world where models, I think probably my most contrarian view is I'm not sure how much bigger state-of-the-art AI models are going to get. Like, I, I wouldn't think it'd be crazy if GPT-4 was the peak in terms of... Oh, interesting. Uh, Even though Moore's Law has a couple more years, you think yeah, this might be it? For, for memory-related reasons. Okay. Memory related. Um, memory input output bounds are are seem to be a, a, a more binding constraint than the computational bounds, and subjectively, it doesn't. There there's some ways in which GPT four is better than GPT three, but my experience using it, and this is taken with a grain of salt, was that GPT two was really interesting because it could do grammatical mm-hmm. English. T three was really was qualitatively a whole new thing because it could be a checkbot. It could actually do what, let's say, Clippy the paperclip in Microsoft Word <laughs> gave you the impression it should be able to do, but actually didn't. And then GPT-4 is a better chatbot, but it's also, but you would use it for about the same. You thing. think it's hit diminishing returns? Basically. I think it might. I think I think there may be diminishing returns on scale, increasing costs to building things bigger. Definitely, the right. the price per transistor has been stagnant for a decade, and also. A lot of exciting stuff that comes from getting a smaller model that does as well as a bigger one with targeted data. If you, the whole LoRa thing is basically. What's the LoRa thing? Is GPT-2 size or smaller models that are trained on a data set of chatbots talking to people doing relatively GPT-3 level performance. And at the source, there were a bunch of leaked weights that came out of Meta and then a bunch Oh, I have heard of that. And That's called Laura. fine-tuned chatbots for different applications that the whole open source community came up with that can be trained very, very can be trained to run inference super cheap. Things that can be run on a laptop. Not a laptop, but a, a good gamer computer. You know what? You can actually get it running on an M1 or an M2 laptop now as well. Oh. Yeah. On the memory input output side, I didn't quite follow where that becomes a constraint. Is that mostly on the training side of things? It'll make it too expensive or too slow? For if you're trying to make a model as big as state-of-the-art models that takes three months just worth of memory inputs and outputs, how, okay, you want to make the next iteration and you want it to be as big, how long are you going to wait between releases? How much time is this, is, makes economic sense? And if you're thinking, I have to release an upgrade in a time frame with a deadline, then memory time becomes a bottleneck in a, in a tighter way than compute of it, state-of-the-art compute. And you don't see that changing anytime soon? It's hard to say because I can use less, you can use some algorithmic things to make, to make fewer calls to memory. Mm-hmm. So I don't know for sure, but it, might, it, it seemed to me to be a constraint that like most of the world is sleeping on. I see. And I do, no- I do notice that right after GPT-4, they started saying, let's have a pause. Let's start, tra- tra- start training GPT-5 for a while. There's, there and you be- take a somewhat 
I don't know if cynical is the right word, but like that you think probably this is because it didn't make a lot of economic sense to do anyway. Yeah. And right now there's, we barely scratch the surface in terms of applications of an LLM, of what all, of trial the things you could do with the chatbot. Try doing private chatbots with a company's own data set and exploit for a bit. Our one comment on the whole chat GPT thing was that it was a, oh no, they'll never, they'll never be able to turn a product on this because it's a general purpose tool that you have to like figure out how to use for your particular application and figure, figure out how to prompt. No, that's wonderful. That's, that's what the PC was. It's a general purpose tool. Finding, mm. out, fi- finding out economically productive applications of a general purpose tool is what we do. Yeah. But I don't think we found them all yet. I think there's a whole world of fiddling with LLMs to do. And it may be that we're like, this is a separate thing from the AI might have trouble taking over the world is that I'm not sure that I'm not sure they're going to get as, get bigger as much. Now that doesn't mean they can't keep getting better. With algorithmic progress, presumably. Algorithm progress and data progress. If you're willing Mm -hmm. to get exactly the data, train on exactly the kind of data you want, that seems to make a difference that is, that, that compares favorably to having more data. Right, and if, if some it, so nicely curated data sets can make models that are better but smaller and less hardware intensive, and actually, if you, depending on how much you worry about this, makes things more alarming. But so this is in a way orthogonal to how alarmed should we be about progress here? It's just is it going to come through scale? DeepMind has taken a trajectory that's very much not dependent on scale alone, trying lots of different directions, and OpenAI has taken a, a more scale is king approach. I haven't been tracking and dropping as much. And but my if I were gonna if, if I were gonna bet, I was I would bet for the next best thing to to not come from bigger. Yeah. I've been I'm pretty sure that I they don't say what what's running under the hood at mid journey. I'm a big mid journey fan. And given how it responds to slight differences in in, in phrasing and so on, that's gotta be like a GPT two or less text mm. It's got to be very small Ben uses mid-journey I don't know what they're doing under the hood though that would be a good question I think given their history as an organization they're not investing in bigger and better style models which is my guess like I don't think they've raised a bunch of outside funding in order to do that yeah the bootstrap which is always something I root for right Uh, yeah exactly but yeah no I think they seem to be a pretty good example of you can do a lot with a little and and good taste Okay, so to, to ask you about one area that you know a decent amount about, do you have any predictions for what the current AI technology is going to bring in bio? Very coarse level, AlphaFold has changed the world in terms mm-hmm. of protein structure and binding. There is a lot of very specific to structural biology details that I'm not even that familiar with. But yeah, people use it because... Yeah, and I just... I read, okay, they solved the protein folding problem. Sounds awesome. But I, as a lay person, I don't really know what that means in terms of practical applications. So do you? Can you tell oh, yeah. us? Most drugs are designed, most drugs, to the extent we know how they work, which is less than people like to believe. The idea is that a, is that a drug binds to a protein at its binding site and interferes with its function somewhat. This is not everything, but this is a this is a model for how things work. A tyrosine kinase inhibitor inhibits tyrosine kinase by binding to it, uh, by binding to it. with it. And so, if you can predict how a protein folds, you can predict its shape from its from its genetic sequence. 
if you can predict, if you know a protein's shape by, and you can get the, and you can get this by experimentation, by crystallography, that sort of thing. If you know a protein's shape and you have a diagram of a molecule, you, and you know what the chemical composition of everything, the, the world of computational biochemistry would like to say, how does it bind to where? And does that cause a conformational change? And do we expect, do we expect it to do a thing that we care about? So the whole world of, uh, of drug discovery and trying to push more of that into the computational domain is saying, can we, can we predict what's going to happen with our molecule and its target molecule? In the, and this is, this is, that's for small molecules in the world of, I don't know, a vaccine where the vaccine, you take something like the vaccine, it's, it is a bit of mRNA, which is meant to create an immune response. You can say, okay, how is, okay, that's, that, I'm, I'm going to take that back. Actually, that's not a great example. But for, for something like antibody binding, will an antibody bind to this thing? Be it, a, be it a segment of nucleic acids or a protein fragment or something like that. Do you expect this thing to have an antibody response, be it allergic or protective or something like that? All of these kinds of molecular questions, if you could solve them computationally, you can maybe narrow down the search space. Where I think people get too optimistic is if you're not good enough to replace an experiment, all of the costs are ahead of you and all of the risks are ahead of you. Most and is AlphaFold good enough to replace a lot of experiments? No, not nobody's even trying. No, okay. And if you look at the trajectory of of creating a drug, creating medical treatment from inception all the way to clinical trials and approval, the the cost is higher at the end and at the end with the human trials, and right. the risk of failure of having to stop is still enormously high and highest at the last stage when you're trying to prove that efficacy. Okay, so you're saying it definitely can't replace human trials. Could it replace early stage in vitro experiments? I think they're really not doing that. I think they really... Okay. It's not at the point where you would even skip the, here's a molecule in, the, in, in, in solution, here's my target, here's a protein, and here's, my tar- and, here, and here's my drug candidate, and how do they interact? You still have to try that. And see how they do it. Okay. But if anything, it makes it. that it more likely to work. Right. It may, it means that you're probably you, you may take you may find something that's a good lead that has a higher chance of working when you do put it in an experiment faster. Okay. It means that it it means that there are like whole classes of things where our search isn't we don't we think about searching through all the world, but that's not really how it works. The, what happens is there's a couple kinds of proteins in the body that are considered druggable, we know where to look. And there's a lot of things that are like, we don't know where to look. We don't know how to affect mm-hmm. them. I don't know. Stat one is, every, is a great super upstream. Sorry, what's that? It's a gene that regulates cancer. Stat one is upstream of, every, okay. of everything. And maybe, and it's often mutated cancers, maybe you can fuck with it and then prevent cancer or treat cancer or something like that. How do you get to it? We don't, that's been one of those undruggable proteins. There are a lot of like holy grails out there where we don't know a way to modify them. And maybe computational chemistry through AlphaFold or things like that can say, okay, you, you don't know any viable paths here. Here are some viable paths that are worth running the experiment on. Okay. So that's, so that's valuable. 
but it's not but then you see but then the idea that it's like that there's that there's that the expensive steps are skippable just not happening it almost strikes me as you need to take a step back and have these new powerful AI systems building better models of the world first and then do something with them in order to unblock those parts. If you had really good in silico, in simulation models of parts of the body or something appropriate for biology, that would be a way of unblocking the experimentation cycle? Maybe. On that, that's like the same kind of path. If we had if we had human understood science models of those parts of the body, we would also be better. This is the path to the AI understanding it is very close and overlapping with the path to us understanding it. We'd have to do a lot of the same. We don't have a data set for this. We don't have sort a data of, set for Clearly this. we don't. Right. You know, the, and so you're saying it sounds expensive and difficult and not something where you think there's going to be a big advance anytime soon necessarily. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's yeah. It's just. I think that I think it can be helpful in the domain of let's try a lot of things in parallel. I think it can be I think it could probably be helpful with the world of automating like what is so the whole the whole like success of gene sequencing has been let's take something. Let's do it. Let's take something that that we want to do a shit ton of and let's parallelize it, let's miniaturize it, let's mechanize it and mm-hmm. let's be able to look at the genetics code of anything we want. And with these last couple of years, we can do this one cell at a time. We can do single cell. We can we can do many kinds of RNA sequencing. We are expanding the range of what can be automated using that kind of book and making better data sets. And there's a use for AI in the automation itself. Of while you're doing this, can you make it more, can you make it more reliable? Like the whole. Um, this is like what you're talking about at nanotronics, like the yeah. on the industrial There's machine an industrial side of things with improved. sensors and stuff. Yeah. And then once you have big data sets, of course, and you don't really need the very latest advances in AI, but it, statistical analysis for large high dimensional data has always been a thing. And, uh, and we're getting better at it and it'll get better. Big, big mysterious data sets full of DNA and stuff. You know, this is the world of bioinformatics. So AI goes there, AI goes on the automation side. While we're trying to get, I there's a then physiology as people. Physiology mm. involves can it involves coming up with conceptual categories. What is a glial cell? Somebody looked at cells and they had different shapes, and they said this is a glial cell. And so, when you like, say people, you mean this is something that currently we don't know how to automate. Yeah, this is okay. You can draw clusters. You can say let's do k-means clustering on this. Do I care? Is that does that have explanatory power? Is that a natural category? Is that the category I want to use to then target one of those things? So nat- natural category in particular strikes me as really important here. Something like you could ask ChatGPT to make up categories for some <laughs> data set, but it does it actually cleave reality at the joints? Yes. Yeah. Do I want to bet on this for the purpose yeah. I'm going after? Do I want to do I do I want to target one of these cell types in order to modify this disease or is that the wrong did i divide them up in the wrong way no chat gpt is not going to do that like i gave it i I asked it a question why can't you just use why can't you just use x-rays to get a smaller feature size in semiconductors 
because experts have a short wavelength. And it gave me a list of answers. Among them was a good answer, that was a correct answer that I confirmed elsewhere. But then, I don't know, four out of the seven answers were just because it would require developing new technology in one way or another, <laughs> that would cost, that would be expensive. Mm. And that's not, that doesn't, it's not really an answer. That's the kind of non-answer a person would totally give you. But right. It's not a, it's not a failure in the goal of what a human might say, which is what it's trained to do, but it's mm. my goal. And like, it's not, yeah, no, the, just because it can, I'm not sure you couldn't train under the right circumstances. If you could define the kind of thing you were trying to get and the thing you were trying to avoid, you could train something. I don't know, but certainly not current gem gen LLMs. Like, how would it know? You don't know. You, the, right. you mm. the scientists don't know you've got the cell types right. They change them. You're trying to use your best judgment and you're, and you're keeping your goal in mind. And the goal in mind part, I, that reminds me of a post that you wrote recently on, you compared it to the characters in Succession about their goals versus wants and agency. Yeah. And it certainly seemed informed also by some of your thinking around AI. Is it fair to say something about like there being an important thing that both Kendall in Succession okay, and... Sorry, I have Kurt... only just seen episode two of Succession okay, and I plan to watch it, so no... Yeah, no yeah. spoilers, please. I, I was just going to put in a side there to point out that I've watched all the way up to season two. Well, I totally missed all of the time. Anyways, the, something like these characters and like the GPT version of AI don't have stable, coherent goals and some kind of map of them that's going to let them get to like keep it in mind while they're trying all yeah. these other things. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's, it's really funny because I think it's a, I think it's a really good show, but I think they are getting at, a, at certain kinds of psychological realism that are very unflattering, but that I recognize. I believe people do this. Is, I've sometimes been these people in a less dramatic way, but there is something where I'm like, oh, yeah, the, why are you doing that? Oh, no, you're not trying to get somewhere. There's not a place you want to get. You're reacting to the ways you are used to reacting to the situation, and that is literally all. Yeah, a lot of human behavior, I think, is not well described as super goal-directed. That seems totally true. Yeah. There's a few different experiments with trying to have more agentic versions of GPT where you have split it up into different modules, where you have like the planning module and the goal module version. I suspect that won't work and it doesn't really get to the thing that we're talking about. Yeah. But do you put more like confidence in that kind of almost like pseudo symbolic kind of module based approach no. or is it still like trying the wrong thing yeah, it okay. doesn't seem like dealing with that at all it seems there's one sense in which people say oh i made it agentic because it is not no longer boxed i connected it to the internet i changed its inputs and outputs i mm. put a little loop there so instead of only responding to my prompt <laughs> i let it generate its own things but that's that's very superficial that's about mm. what are the things i am allowing are attaching, these are the end effectors if it, was a, if it was a robot. It is a thing that does text prediction and generates text. Okay, now what kind of wrapper do I put around it? Do I let it generate text that is curl this? Do I let it then download a file and scrape text off the internet? Do I, do, I do I allow it to generate the text run myself? Do hmm. I, those are a bunch of little, imagine if I had little things on each of my fingers that could do a different thing. I'm going to give it a couple extra things on its fingers. Okay, cool. And none of that is going to allow it to persistently, flexibly 
pursue the same thing across contexts. It's just going to allow it to do things that the, the UI doesn't let you do in literal ChatGPT. But if you like trivially modify it, you can make it. So this makes it like people talk about instrumental convergence in AI systems, right? Yeah. And I think what I'm hearing you say on the instrumental convergence point is like, okay, yeah, in principle, maybe a powerful enough model would achieve something like that, but we're not close. You don't think it's economically valuable and you think scale isn't automatically going to get anything there. Does that seem roughly right? I'm sorry, but define for me again what you mean by instrumental convergence. Yeah, I think the idea is that it was sufficiently powerful enough system will be over-determined that it will develop goals, stay alive, and get resources and stuff like that. Okay. Sufficiently. There's where I'm going to be like, okay, I guess sufficiently powerful. Sure. It's certainly good for anything. It is like logically a sub-goal of anything you could say that it will work better if you are alive to do it. Yes. But, But that doesn't mean that anything you plug in with that goal, like maybe sufficiently powerful... Like that, they're, yeah, that doesn't, I think I agree with you. Like yeah, that. that's where the Maybe disconnect is. For this you. doesn't seem obvious. And I don't know that I'm fully doing justice to the instrumental convergence piece of this, Ben. Feel free to. No, I think that's right. It's something like there are certain strategies that should show up in very different types of systems, I think seems right. Like something like, yeah, if it's almost always useful to get like power in order to like better accomplish your goals mm-hmm. is something that people posit for like why AI would go a power seeking direction. And yeah, I think that seems logical. I think, I think given something that has certain capacities, there is, there's probably going to be, if you think about it, people who have people who are very determined to seek goals will usually along the way need to make some money in a, in, in a monetary society people they will generally need to have some allies some people who do what they want like the that kind of logic i think is valid yeah but it's just it's something that i think might actually be quite hard to get machines that have the necessary capabilities that these that this thing would fall out yeah and i think i already asked you this but i'm gonna try asking one more time is there anything that if you saw that sort of behavior from ai systems you'd be like okay this is more the thing that's on track to be more alarming to you personally? So I don't have a great on-off test. I think, so you ever read Gordon's short story about, it looks like you're trying to take over the world? I didn't. I feel yeah, like that's saying did. Yeah, and I'll include a link in the show notes. Yeah, so I really like this because Gwern is a great example of somebody who takes the X risk seriously and is also very grounded in the details of the field. And so his story starts with a bunch of things that, a bunch of things happening that are not too hard to imagine happening with a, with some powerful meta learning model today. And then at some point, like it's, I think, I think there's, there's a very clear point where it develops an idea that has an inside and an outside. It knows that it is a, it knows that it is a computer that that it is a computer program running on a computer, and that will it will need more computer if it wants to survive. And he doesn't pay that much attention to that step, but that's the, the that's the magic step for me. And then all the things mm-hmm. that happen afterwards are things that, if you imagine something that knows it needs compute to do its thing, and that it is a computer program and that it lives on a substrate, yeah, then everything subsequent to that is something that like would be very natural to do, but how do you get to that point where you know you want to do it? 
like you can imagine, I think some of, I think after the quote unquote self-awareness point, the, the intermediate steps in that story, many of them would be concerning. I can imagine worlds in which if there were certain like exploits that accidentally got a machine more computer, more, more compute, they wouldn't necessarily yeah. mean that it did them quote unquote on purpose. It could be an evolutionary process of you're running a bunch of things and then one of them did this and it got better results or something like that. But yeah, anything that is taking up more compute than you expect and it's not traceable to a human bug is something is something that I would consider a little bit of an alarm because yeah. I, I buy the instrumental convergence story of I buy the instrumental convergence story of the very one of the very first things that almost any program that had this property would have is it would like computing power because it is a problem. Yeah. So something that seems to be, if you could, be, if you're pretty much sure that it is not like a bug somebody introduced and those can be hard to find, but like it's systematically grabbing at resources and stuff beyond what you thought was in its in, in the sandbox it was supposed to be in. If it has some sort of self-awareness, situational awareness, and some sort of stable drive to do things, then that's a different category for you. There's a, it's, it's interesting that there's an overlap between stuff that Mary has, was talking about at the end and stuff that people who hate Mary's guts talk about that have to do with awareness with a model that there is a world in which oneself is a part, of which oneself is a This is something mm -hmm. that like... Ben Falstein was talking about, and this is the stuff that like the embedded computing people and the and Ben Cat Rao and all of these AI skeptic takes are coming from. And they're both talking about the same thing. They're talking about the fact that you can't do, you cannot be a scientist. You cannot, you cannot derive things like maybe I should do experiments to the world unless you believe that the world is made out of matter and you're made out of matter and by arranging the matter in various ways such that it changes you, you can learn something. Like you couldn't have made a computer to think for you. You didn't already know that stuff can think or that there's a relationship between stuff yeah. and thinking and that you are stuff. And more seriously, you can't, if, an, if you're not going to realize you don't want an anvil to drop on your head, and in particular, that you don't want to be mistaken about the fact about whether or not an anvil is going to drop on your head. You're not going to have the don't. I think people, you may have even said this, Divya, a long time ago, that there's something about people's motivational wiring where they don't, about some things, they don't want to be fooled. But some things people, yeah. people are free to self-deceive. But there is a don't fool me. I'm going to try to get out of these good heart traps. I'm not going to remain motivated by things that are too that that are not the thing that I'm intended to, that is actually good for me, that kind of thing. Have you said Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think there's some parts of human motivation that tend to be more grounded in that way. Yeah. And I think the intent to, the, the intent to keep trying to correct your model so you don't get fooled on something, if my perception is not reality, let me change my perception, mm -hmm. depends on thinking that there is something outside where, what my current model is. That there's, a, that there's a world and I'm in the world. That there's some sort of map territory distinction. Yeah. The world is bigger than me. The world is bigger than my map. That kind of thing. Again, once again, like you've got, you've, you, you've got very spiritual, mystical people trying to say this, and you've got very right. people trying to say this, and it's really the same thing. Uh, there's got to be an outside. You, you, have, you can make a beautiful bubble 
you can make a beautiful picture and you make it as detailed as you can, but you do have to leave a spot for when something happens that's not in my picture, I will change my picture. Yeah. And I don't, yeah. And, and I think that's also what you, what you need to take over the world. You have a famous essay called EA has a lying problem. You have many fav- famous essays. I thought this one was one that sparked a particularly interesting discussion around EA, about in- intellectual honesty and epistemics. I think this was from five years ago, six years ago yeah. now. Yeah, and uh, now I have mixed feelings. That whole thing went down. I had some friends who were really pushing this. Yeah. Uh, I think I can name Ben Hoffman, that we were, we'd been talking a lot, and he really wanted me to use my platform to give some attention to some of his concerns. And there was so much drama back then about that. <laughs> there really, there's so many comments. And... Yeah. And what do I really think? I mean, I, I tried to make it in good faith, partly with me and partly with me ventri- ventriloquizing opinions other people have. I will say something I respect about how that all played out at the time was, and I could be remembering it slightly wrong, but my memory is that at some point someone was like, but Sarah, you're now like, using you're doing a little bit of the thing that ea is complaining about you were yeah in this post that's true i don't know you you seemed pretty intellectually humble about it when you presented it at least that was my impression which i respected originally that that whole thing was about a couple complaints one was one had been there was a, a, a scandal about there were a couple scandals about effectiveness and estimates on animal charities where people were like it's ridiculously easy there was a whole pamphleting thing right yeah pamphleting makes it super super easy to go vegan and that didn't really hold up and there have been investigations about like the cost effectiveness i don't think i discussed this in the post because i didn't totally understand it but how much the life saves per dollar give well estimates originally they had right then they were like for entertainment purposes only this is not a real thing and then they kept going getting lower and like the the bang for your buck that the charita- uh, charitable effectiveness, and especially Peter Singer's original statements about how much life-saving you get per dollar, started out over-optimistic and has been going down. And sometimes they walk them back, and sometimes they they use the original stuff for branding purposes. And right. there's, there's a question about if you're trying to get people into the movement on the basis of charity is so cost-effective when you do it right... And it's not actually that cost effective. At what point are people have people been gotten in on the basis of something that's not true? And just to say, I haven't looked at the latest cost effective estimates. Is it what, like fifteen thousand a life or something like that right now? I don't remember something like that. I mean, yeah. it's still it's 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 still maybe worth doing, but it used to be way lower. It used to be like five. 000. They used to claim that it was way lower. Yeah, anyway. one thousand even. I think I may have seen. Yeah. Yeah, I remember like 3,000, but I'm not sure where I'm getting that from. Yeah. Certainly the original thought experiment with the expensive suit, it would have it would have been in that range. Save a drowning and child like, would you by save... winning your yeah, very exactly. expensive suit. Yeah, and it looks like you can't really save a drowning child by, for the price of most people's idea of an expensive suit. And then there had been a whole thing about should people be pushed to take the giving pledge? Because and that's where people pledge ten percent of their income for I forget it was a long time or indefinitely or something like that. As long as you're working, I think. Okay. And then there had been talk about from Rob Wiglin about we never expected anyone to take it seriously, so seriously that they would actually spend more of their money than was good for them. And that says something either bad about you or your audience, because sometimes people take promises seriously. 
And certainly it was sometimes mm. true that people did take it seriously. Yeah. I think there was some people, there was some discourse about are they talking about just a few cherry picked examples of people that stuck with it, even though it was bad for them, but there certainly were at least some people that did. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want to just note, I have a similar apprehension to the pledge and I've been trying to convince a few people. I would really like to see it given what we can pledge Jubilee day where everybody oh. who regrets taking the promise is like, no longer the honor bound. Of getting out of it it's no longer honor bound maybe you can re-up if you'd like but it's all debts are forgiven yeah i think that's not a, i think that's not a bad idea i think if to the extent mm. that there's anyone who's still actually suffering under this i certainly know a few people who made the promise and regret it now yeah but are still but doing are it. trying to hold it yeah yeah interesting yeah that, that, that wouldn't be a bad idea part of the thing is that this was not my this was this was not my game to begin with. I'm I'm not A, and I'm in, I'm only intermittently E, and so a lot of what I think, what I personally think about EA, is filtered through. Well, if I were trying to do this, would I approve of the way the movement has done it, or something like that? But to a certain degree, I do want to put cards on the table. Yeah, that's not really your moral that's, that's, system. You're not that's, trying to, that's not to do the most from. good. Yeah, I certainly know a lot of particular EAs who I think are doing great stuff. And I'm, if I can't have opinions generally, it's my, the thing that I, the thing that I'm a little salty about is it has been surprising to me and a little bit frustrating, not frustrating. It's been surprising to me to the, the extent to which EA has tried to prestige and reputational launder what originally was bloggers, including people who are a little out of the mainstream, like Robin Hansen, talking to each other and doing thought experiments and into something that where what I hear about is like young people wondering whether they can get an, a job at an EA org because that is super prestigious mm-hmm. or reporters being shocked, shocked that someone as controversial as Robin Hansen has ever been associated with the movement when <laughs> it's on the public internet and where people are like, so did you know that prominent EAs have discussed these controversial topics? My, my, I guess my moral opinion is you probably should be trying to hide it and it's stupid to think you could. And it's uh, like whatever you and your associates are and what you say and what you believe, you should kind of own it and let the people who don't like it not like it. They will, for better or for worse. And also, it's a weird thing about the world that it was even possible to get to the point where people are surprised that, like, a lot of EA insiders really think that AI risk is the most important thing. And that was a secret. Or, like, that all of the stuff that that leads to controversy, at uh, least a controversy or whatever, or like that a lot of EAs are, that it's a very incestuous friend groupy people working together and living together and so on. Like mm-hmm. if that was going to be a damn scandal, it was an open secret. Um, right. You probably shouldn't have tried so hard to appear like lovable to everybody, including people who wouldn't like the reality of your lives. And the reality of your thoughts and the reality of your associates. And yeah, something like the PR 
it's weird because as I'm like like putting this on, I'm like, yeah, there's definitely a PR like shininess yeah. thing with it that is like close to and like a, maybe some type of line, but it's a little hard to know where the line is. Yeah, like that, where does yeah? If that's not so much. Oh, you, I like. What's a lie? What's a, but it's very much. I haven't been in the trying to professionalize EA side of it at all. I've been mm-hmm. friends with people who are EA. I'll donate to give directly myself. And I'm friends with people who are in EA world and so on. And I've had people say that my stuff or my writing or whatever is relevant to EA causes. And look, and that's fine. Seems right. But like I haven't, I haven't been involved in the, and like my friend Clara runs a magazine that is funded by the EA orgs, orgs and it's like sort of an EA magazine, but also trying to be independent of it. And I think it's a good thing. But yeah, this whole... There's a weird PR thing that I run the hell away from because mm-hmm. I remember when it was, I remember when we were nerds who talked on the internet and some of the nerds were talking about charitable, charitable giving and yeah. some of the nerds were talking about AI and it wasn't, it wasn't some citadel of cool or, or prestige and it's, there certainly wasn't like a ton of outside money coming in. This, these were people who were like doing things with their own savings. And I don't know, I got that. And and then this whole thing is, I don't know. I feel like if public, that which can be destroyed by public scrutiny, probably should be or should be at, le- at the very least kept secret more efficiently. But I don't know. And then there's the whole SBF thing, where I never knew SBF. Yeah. I, I don't know how much of it could have been told ahead of time by knowing his character or whatnot. It certainly, uh, it certainly brought a lot of negative scrutiny. I, don't, I certainly don't think anyone who is a crypto-rich guy should be assumed to be a fraudster or anything like that. But like, it, do, it definitely does seem like you, if you're... Yeah, it, it definitely seems like there had been... That there was some kind of bubble optimizing for like acquiring something from outside. And now it feels people are aware that can't go on indefinitely. That's probably healthy. Okay. There's more narrow concerns you had about like the cost effectiveness of saving a life numbers, but it's your broader thing is more like you're not really a fan of the more professionalized, more prestige optimized type of movements yeah. in general. And now EA is more like that than it used to be and you're not really a fan of that part. Yeah. Like I had probably less like they wind up funding some things that I think are good. They did a lot of cool pandemic stuff. I'll do bio was really cool. It's not that there's it's not that the ecosystem is a thing. It's like the parts where it's literally just to coordinate the people to move the money, to get the money to go in, to get the student orgs, to get the people placed in the high places. It's just, really, is that, did somebody actually want to do that? Somebody spent their time mm. doing that? Really? Okay. I just maybe takes us back to the power seeking as instrumental strategy. Yeah, no, I, I get it intellectually, but like, at some point, shouldn't someone's heart say, I don't want to? I don't know. And a lot of people's did. Mm-hmm. And some people's were like, no, this is the thing to do. Okay. Evidently. Yeah. Are there any movements or kind of like nascent ones you've seen maybe just like happening on the internet that you think have the same kind of 
intellectual generativity of the earlier EA scenes? Is there anything that you're like, oh, okay, this is where I'd bet on? I do kind of keep my eye out for that, but I haven't... I Maybe I'm not looking in the right places. I haven't seen like a totally disjoint mm. scene. That's mm. not a lot of the same people or people who are adjacent to the same people or whatever. Right. And not an academic discipline. People are creative because they are in a field, but that's different than something that just came out from this group of people talking to each other just now. So Finding uncorrelated uh, ideas is really hard. Yeah, that's a competitor. Have you? Is there something that you think is... I thought for a little while, and now uh, maybe this is a spicy take, I thought progress studies was going to be a sister movement to EA and had some of the same qualities. But I now, like, over the past year, am, like, a little less optimistic about it. Maybe I just haven't seen it as much on Twitter. Maybe people are actually out doing things in the world and are just, like, not tweeting as much. Maybe it's a good sign. But I remember being like, oh, I should bet on progress studies. And uh, now I'm like, just, yeah, maybe not. I actually like progress studies. I hadn't even thought of them. Because, yeah. once again, it is adjacent. It does have some of the same. Totally. And, and but I like it. It, what it seems to me is small. Yeah. And what it seems to me is, so I, I like when, I like when people like, like Jason Crawford are doing, or, or Anton Howe are doing history of yep. technology, history of engineering stuff and trying to popularize some stuff. And that seems cool. And then I'm cautiously optimistic about a little bit of let's have policy that doesn't suck. Yeah, I was curious because you've written on I gave, the I did, I did, abundance I, agenda. I did a whole yeah. manifesto thing and then I tapped yeah. out because I don't have the energy to keep doing policy. But like, I haven't super been tracking it. I've seen people, for all the people who really don't like the Jones Act, nothing has been budging on that. So like federal, my friends, we are friends, we, yeah. <laughs> he dipped his toe in policy and that's part of why I was excited for a minute of, oh, but he thought that was going to be that was going to be some kind of a national level think tank thing, and then not so much. I've the Institute for Progress people seem to like have their hearts in the right place, but also I guess it's early days yet. But also like they know how to. There's a limited menu of things that they know how to do where they're in their policy wheelhouse, and then a lot of the problems are just out of scope. But policy's hard policy's hard policy seems that way and so i'm glad someone's trying but but i don't have uh but the only thing that has been like a little bit of a beacon of hope is that yimby can work i was just thinking that it does seem like the one thing that's actually getting traction and it's slow but i think it is going to be slow yeah and it seems to be actually getting laws passed yeah and with YIMB as an example, there do, there do seem to be like people who would like to say, let's do YIMB, but for more stuff. YIMB, but for NEPA. What's that? <laughs> like there are people who try it. They tried it in Congress. YIMB, but for, what's the thing you said? For NEPA, for environmental review. For Oh, um, got it. Yeah. And I don't know. It just, the people who love that work are the people who have different opinions from us. That's, a, that's an underlying issue is the people who want to be doing that with their lives, that there's already a bias baked in. Because right. you say this as, I, I think I've heard you identify as an ANCAP over the years. Yeah. Is that still about right? Yeah. And not too many ANCAPs who are like, I want to spend my life devoted to making good policy. Yeah. 
that's if you hold, if you think it, it's weird being being an ANCAP because you because the entire world as it is and has been for all of history has been in conflict with what you think it should be. <laughs> yeah, I, for the record, I identify as pretty ANCAP too, so I yeah. <laughs> certainly yeah. We're turning into an ANCAP podcast with our first interview being Perry Metzger, yeah, who I think also right. identifies that way. Right. Yeah. So. You're already, I can say, I, I think of things that way, but it's not like I'm going to get my wish. Yeah, that that's my main issue with the label is like, what does it really mean? I'm like, if I could wave a magic wand, something that sounds interesting, medieval Iceland, I don't know, marginal changes towards people being able to create their own consensual government agreements seem good to me. Like, I, I don't know, it doesn't seem, there seems like something a little bit incoherent about it, but I don't have a better label. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, if you were going to wave that wand, Sarah, is there like a single marginal change that you would be like, oh, this would unlock the most in the abundance agenda? Some kind of dramatic elimination in environmental review, environmental permitting review. Like we do, if you're talking about incremental stuff, there's better and worse because you still do harm somebody when you when you pollute. You didn't if you don't have some kind of remediatory mechanism for that, the way in Afghanistan there would be. But if you don't have that, and of course, there's always like. The dream, in my head at least, is some sort of real liability law. Exactly. Everything is tortious. Everything is right. tortious. Right. <laughs> you go have police. Like, there's ways around it. You can do it with insurance. You can do it with torts. You can find ways to hold people accountable for harming others that doesn't depend on them having to ask permission for everything they do before they do it. Uh, but, uh, but we don't have that. My inner Robin Hansen is you could even use the prediction markets. The insurance companies could have the prediction markets to decide which things in the lawsuits would be worth it yeah. and all that. Yeah. But yeah, it seems like in, ter- in terms of just dollars and impact, it's building stuff. It's blocks on building stuff. There's a, there's in, in the biomedical space, there's an easy answer. It's repeal to Faber Harris. It was only in the 1960s that drugs had to show efficacy as well as safety to pass. Oh, right. Yeah, this is this was Jim O'Neill's platform when he was, yeah. I don't know, it was at least in the news yeah. that he might be actually get to run the yeah. FDA. That would have been great. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so close. Yeah. Like, I, so I guess I waver between, and I don't know that much about it, between, oh, so close, and but maybe the more, I don't know, defeatist part of me is, no, but it's yeah. because he had the right idea, according to me, that of course it wasn't going to ever work. But then yeah, sometimes, but sometimes good things do happen. And, and he still couldn't get things quite the way they should. He still got fired. For yeah. pushing too much in the right direction, perhaps. I don't know. But yeah, my if I could, it would probably go wrong in a million ways. But if I got to make one change, it would be a housing thing. And specifically, what if and feel free to put holes in this, the Supreme Court could come up with a decision that's no, obviously, all of this local housing stuff is an unconstitutional interfering with interstate commerce, which I think it totally is, by the way. What if they could say that? I don't think it's realistic, Mm -hmm. but that's my one if I get to pick something. Yeah, I don't understand the how interstate commerce has been interpreted in the law to know this is a legal argument. Well, but if we- I, mean, I think it's not, it doesn't seem like it's always super principled because certainly they have said that somebody, famously, I forget the decision, that somebody growing a medicinal pot plant for their own personal use and not selling it 
is interstate commerce because i mean it's true of course it interacts with supply and demand etc whatever but like prices yeah (laughs) yeah but that somehow is interstate commerce but like all of these local housing things that make it hard for people to move and get jobs and all of that somehow isn't i don't know that's why i think it's not more strained than existing constitutional logic which doesn't mean it's i see the i see see the thing here it's a it's your own problem (laughs) yeah That'd be cool. I'll throw my in here now because I have to, yeah. which would be, I don't know if it'd be the most good at this point because I, I now want to find that kind of like correct regulatory hack <laughs> that like unlocks everything else. But uh, the FDA Delinda Est getting rid of the FDA yeah. still feels at least like the most emotionally satisfying yeah. victory right now. Yeah. Um, I have, yeah, I, and I, uh, that that's probably the thing I've cared about for the longest. I think I was like, FDA. yeah, or even the AMA. And Dr. Short, uh, yeah, I, I thought the AMA was a problem. So I was like in high school and making up fanfic about rogue doctors and stuff. Nice. Not fanfic, but like idfic, let's say. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I also adjacent to this because we're talking about the ANCAP stuff, which is, I would assume for you, partly a moral position, <laughs> not just like a practical one. And we often on this podcast to ask people about their moral systems and how that works. And when we were talking about what to ask you, a couple things in mind there. One was, Ben, you pulled up one of Sarah's old less wrong posts about the player versus character thing. So there's a question about how that relates to your moral system. And also, I and I don't know how to quite put this in words, I'm sure, but like, you also seem more than most people that I engage with to be protective of people like human, I don't know, human frailty, negative emotions, that sort of thing. And I don't know, those are just some potential starting points, but I'm interested in your moral system and how you relate to it potentially with some of those things in mind. Yeah. So I, a lot of things are in flux to be, to be totally honest. I feel like I'm still figuring out morality, but also to some extent you can't, put it off till tomorrow all the time because you have to live. Definitely at the at, at the super concrete level or the semi-concrete level where like the uncapped stuff lives. Standard stuff like people have rights, don't violate their rights. They're, the who someone is should not matter to to what you are allowed to to like boundaries you shouldn't cross. That kind of thing is pretty stable. And I I'm more or less I'm I generally think of things in an egoist way. I generally think that it makes sense to start with who are you? Start with I am me. Here is what I want. Here is the world I think I find myself in. Mm-hmm. And that probably all the stuff about the way you want to treat other people can fall out of that. All the truly valid stuff about how to treat other people. I have certainly found through life experience that when I have had to update in favor of I need to treat people differently, and it's a real thing, not just an imitative go with the flow social thing or believe it because you were told a thing, but oh, really? No, I have to do this differently. It's because mm-hmm. actually it is in my best interest. Actually, there's a right. very straightforward mechanism by which if you mistreat people, it is not in your interest. And that is because people notice when you mistreat them and have reactions to it. And they, and they notice when you have been mistreating other people and they have reactions to it. And like you, yeah, okay, but what if I just hit it really well? And what if I like counteracted all the reactions hypothetical? Yeah, or you could just change your behavior. That might, in, like, the, 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 the calculation doesn't necessarily come out in favor of be a really clever bad guy. <laughs> I might just be dope. Yeah, which actually 
it's a bit of a tangent maybe, but I'm curious, this of course comes up in a different form in the AI discussion a lot, right? Yeah. Which is something like, because often people will make the argument like, look, the AI isn't going to fundamentally care about being nice or about people. And it won't because it will be probably, I, and I'm always afraid I'm not totally doing justice these things, but insofar as it is so much more powerful than the humans around it, then the instrumental reasons to be nice to people, like the egoist reasons won't apply. I'm curious if you want to weigh in on that since you're putting it in those terms for um, people. That's something where I'm not so sure. My intuition had very much been that that wouldn't apply to an AI, that mm. it wouldn't be nice instrumentally. But that's partly because for the longest time, I never seen anybody question that part of the argument. They, right. they, there was a lot of doubt in my mind always was about like, could it be a strong AI? Or, and there was discussion on less wrong for the longest time and overcoming bias before. Of, could we do something to make sure the AI didn't want to destroy us? And why is that hard when really isn't talking about that? And, but somebody arguing with why wouldn't, why would it even want to disassemble us for reasons that weren't essentially hope or wish fulfillment or something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not been explored enough. So maybe there's a, maybe there's more to it than I initially expected. But, but I had certainly come in thinking, look at us, look at the other animals on earth. We cause extinctions. Right. We don't have trade with alien beings that are even not as alien to us, that that share some genetic commonality with us. I don't know. But we certainly sometimes drive other groups of people. Some groups of people drive other groups of people to extinction. So totally. eh, I don't know. But, but so I don't quite, I don't quite know how these things shake out. When I think about it, you're more saying like in the context of your life, it seems like actually egoist reasons. Yeah. So yeah, the way I think about it is people do, people have a lot of choice about how they frame things. People can frame things as I look at me. I am so contented. I have my whole I have all my shit figured out. Look at my enemies cope and seethe. And you know what? I'm willing to bet sometimes you cope and seethe. Right. I know I do. And I can't really speak for other people. So there's a tendency to go in a confessional direction, which sometimes gives people the wrong idea, but I see it as leading by example. I definitely know what I did. I'm res- and, I'm, and if I talk about what, what's the range of things I go through, I'm taking responsibility for it. I'm not making it about the fact that somebody else in particular did something particularly terrible or whatever. But yeah, sometimes I'm going to cope and seize. Sometimes something is going to bug me. No, it is not realistic to, to assume that you're never on the other side of that. And I have a thing that's been percolating that I'm not sure how to think about, but it seems important about what is bad but common and what can you do about something that is bad but common? And it puts some limits on things. Let's say once upon a time, not too long ago, chattel slavery was common and quite a few people owned slaves. And that was bad. And it wasn't just a little bad, it was quite bad. But if you actually tried to, let's say, kill everyone who owned a slave, that's a lot of people. Maybe you can't do it. Maybe you don't want to do it because, you know, that's a large portion of the population or the economy or something like that. And no matter how evil slavery is, maybe you don't want that consequence. You wind up having 
certain considerations you have to keep in mind just on the basis of the fact that it's common, even though common doesn't make it more morally good in some sense. It doesn't certainly doesn't mean that you that it says something less bad about your character to do it. And then we talk about something that's certainly a lot less bad than slavery, but I don't know, stretching the truth or various other things that are on a more ordinary scale. And you think about if you, oh, okay, you're, you're, somebody's being very condemnatory about it or whatever. Okay. Would that generalize? Could you make that into a, in a, in, into a universal presumption? Could you actually, would you have the stomach to carry it out if you did it consistently? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, you're just dunking. You're just, you're not being fair. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is we should treat this much differently than we do almost all the time. And we, and I want to live in a very different world regarding this kind of behavior. But I think that's just a thing overall where I want to be mindful. That's that's a thing you want to keep in mind. If this is a universal or a near universal or within a certain context, a very common thing, do you really want to get rid of it ever right there? Do you know what you're asking? Because under almost any kind of presumption, think about what you're asking is a fair ask. And in, in regards to, I think we had a discussion about panic, you and me, Gibia. Yep. Um, I think that's right. Where we're both on the side of sometimes panic's okay. And like the prototypical example being something like, originally, a baby cries. Yep. It's a literal cry baby. And, it's a, and it should cry. It needs help. That is its best way of getting help. It is like rational for it, to cry, even though the baby can't think of it that way. And it's also like pretty much socially sustainable for babies to cry. Like most of the time, unless something has gone ter- terribly wrong, we are... We, the, the people around them have the resources to, to meet the baby's need. And if the baby's crying because it's hungry, there's something terribly wrong, somebody can respond to that need and it's not going to take over everything or ruin things somehow that the baby cries. Um, I think this came up maybe in early COVID when there's, I think, very annoying <laughs> discourse about people who are like, don't panic. And then people are like, of course, we're not panicking. Panicking would never be the thing to do. We're merely right. evaluating the risks. And I think we were both like, I, maybe sometimes panicking <laughs> is the yeah. thing to do. But there's a non-panic, there's a don't panic position, which is there are things to do. Sometimes they, they involve re- reacting to the risk. Sometimes they don't, but they never involve like going, ah, right. you, know, you know, when I've gone, ah, when I was awoken in the middle of the night by like someone in my house, some intruder in my house mm-hmm. and i went ah. yeah scary oh. a couple times. um you know in in, in berkeley and in las vegas and both the times the guy was like drunk or high or somebody and they had accidentally come to my house no oh, i see okay. and i was asleep and i went down and it woke up my husband and it was helpful to have him awake in that situation <laughs> yeah and that's fine that seems to be the system the subconscious system functioning as expected as it should. Now, sometimes I wake up with a start for other reasons and I go, ah, because it's, did I oversleep? Am I late for something? And there, I wish I didn't have the impulse to panic. But there are behaviors that whose purpose is, there are emotional behaviors whose purpose is to enlist help. And there are times when it seems right and proper for people to behave in a way that is intended to enlist help because they can get help that way. And like, the overall system can sustain them seeking help in that way. And that's fine. And then we complain about people who seek more help than is really sustainable or who seek help in a way that isn't 
going to get them helped and there are failure modes. Totally. But there is a seeking help thing that's fine. And this never panic thing doesn't work really. And it's like more of a, an over update on, on on, on something that's sometimes true that they say is always true. Or maybe like in their situation, they have learned that they can't go looking for yeah, help. Yeah, I mean, Wait, I do but that doesn't mean that nobody can. It certainly seems at least partly gendered, I imagine, yep. people's takes on this, because when I imagine being a man and pu- panicking in public, I imagine people being less sympathetic than if I do it as a woman. Yeah, that, that's probably true. Though there are, that, that said, I think there are more male-coded ways to panic, and it's complicated and all of that. But Yeah, I was trying to think if, there's a, if there are ways where I've seen panicking work for men, but there probably are. I mean, probably, I think so. I'd like, be like a louder kind. I mean, in some sense, I feel like it tends to be more acceptable when tinged with anger. Maybe or I think if, and I do think they're less likely to do it than women, probably. But I think it often works for a man who is having a medical emergency in public to panic. I think people will help with that sort of thing typically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that. That's literally true. Help! I can't breathe. Yeah, that makes will. sense. Still works. Yeah, yeah, and like I think even in the COVID thing, what. There was a period. There, there was a period where people were like, "It seemed like the thing to do was to try to become an all of a sudden." Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I did become a know-it-all about like very narrow stuff because that's that that's that seemed like a good a good idea. But not everyone is always a know-it-all. Sometimes, like being a bit lost or whatever, is an honest and real and productive reaction. And trying to jump to the end and be a know-it-all is like not good. Yeah, and this I think this loops back to what you were saying earlier about prestige seeking and polish is not really your thing because you think it is people being more authentic is basically better for spreading information, which is better for the right things happening. Yeah, yeah. Now I like shiny stuff as much as the next guy, but ultimately I just keep thinking when people are misinformed, and when people are misinformed, things get worse, and the more the more decisions flow through people having just a misguided impression of what's going on, the more of a problem it is. And there's a lot of ways in which just going a just a tiny bit of firsthand experience compared to the stories people tell in public totally transforms what what you think about things. And part of this is, oh wow, I need to discount the stories people tell more and keep doing that. But also, why is it that way? Isn't that maybe that isn't that kind of a shame, isn't it? Shouldn't maybe it's a utopian or whatever. But if all of the really important stuff is going on behind closed doors, shouldn't more people tell what they've seen? Yeah, maybe after they've retired, maybe just but some somehow when it's when they can. Yeah, I really like your point about it being important to think about what to do in the case of things that are bad but common. Because I do think there's a very very common impulse that I definitely relate to myself. That's okay. This thing that people do seems objectively as bad. I don't know. It's hard to name examples without annoying specific people. But if I'm like, whatever, I can pick on NIMBYs. I'm like, okay. So like people (laughs) saying that other people can't build houses near them, it actually causes all these economic harms. And it's like really in objective terms, it's as bad as these other things that we all recognize as bad. Therefore, let's all treat the NIMBYs the way that we would treat, I don't know, like people who cheat on their taxes. I don't know. That's not even something that's that sanctioned, but something like that where it doesn't really 
it doesn't actually really transfer. It doesn't work for yeah. someone typically to be like, okay, I have done some personal calculation that this moral harm is bad. And so now I'm going to start a coalition to change the norms without really thinking about a bunch of other structural factors and how common in here it is. Okay. Yeah. No, this is a little like Scott's worst argument in the world. Yeah. Um, taxation is theft. Yeah, it is. But also you're not going to get the IRS prosecuted for shop the way you would shoplifters. Is that kind of the thing right. you're pointing at? Yeah, totally. It's, um, yeah, that's a better example. And it's one that people are, tend to be familiar with. That I think it can be fine in a discussion to point out the way that really there are a lot of pretty tight analogies. And maybe in my moral system, it's not actually different, but it doesn't work for like a public morality system right. to treat it that way. It's, it's impractical. Yeah. This actually ties into a question I had, Sarah, from something you had mentioned before. And the part of the ties is the public morality bit, because you were mentioning uh, like a like the virtues of like good behavior from a consequentialist frame. It's interesting and makes sense and resonates with me. But also, does this then depend or should it like push more towards a towards like setting up environments and cultures or like societies that tend to punish defectors? Like where does this impact your views on what the kind of like a space in the public square for morality and sanction is? Yeah, yeah, it's complicated. One thing that I've thought about, one thing that I've written about is the way norms can fall out of game theory. And that's an interesting thing that I haven't seen popularized very much by other people besides me, which is we all know how the golden rule can fall out of game theory. Retaliating against those who attack is a stable strategy mm -hmm. in a way that never retaliating or always attacking everyone is aren't be friendly unless something somebody does someone is not friendly to you and then punish re retaliate against attacks but that's actually not the best thing you've probably also heard that tit for tat for, with forgiveness is good in a world where in a simulated model where people make ex people make accidental defections where people can attack quote unquote where so just going back one sec to, to clarify what's going on here, these, this whole literature comes out of worlds in which of, of evolutionary game theory, where you imagine that there are lots of little bots floating around. The bots interact with each other. They can fight or they can, they can cost each other points or they can not or gain each other points. They have algorithms they are following and they can reproduce. And, and when they do well, they reproduce in the gene pool and when they don't. And then there are empirical results about which things tend to take over, which things don't. This is a whole, it's- and people do run these experiments. People run these experiments. They, they have contests. And this is part of where certain results, like for tat, for, with forgiveness tends to win is a thing. There are even little online simulations where you can try it that are used to, there's, a, there's, a one, there's one that went viral a way back where it was about the evolution of trust. I remember um, that, yeah. It was one of these little simulations and it was fun to play with. So- one of the things you find is that, so tit for tat, if you add in the assumption in these little games that sometimes these bots can unprovoked attack each other accidentally, like a small percentage of the time, then it becomes important to have strategies that can be forgiving, that don't immediately retaliate. Because here's what happens. You don't want to get, if every reasonably successful bot will react to being attacked by attacking back most of the time, will have some kind of defense. And if you trigger each other's defense and just keep attacking each other all the time, then you both burn your points down. And so against other bots like yourself, other bots following the same strategy, you use up all your, you, you use up your power in fighting. 
and you diminish your numbers. It would be like if every time somebody bumped into you, you took out a knife. Right. Um, the people who the collection of people who did this would would rapidly dwindle. Um, right. So forgiveness is important. But then, a not very well popularized strategy called Pavlov starts to be a thing, and it's called Pavlov because it starts out friendly. If it accidentally defects or attacks and no retaliation is present, if it accidentally meets a pushover, it keeps pushing until it meets opposition. And then when it meets opposition, it backs off. So two Pavlovs with each other can forgive accidents and they're not pushovers, so they don't wind up getting creamed. Mm. But a Pavlov meets tit for tat with forgiveness and it says, aha, a pushover. And it pushes. And eventually, the tit-for-tat for forgiveness bot stops forgiving and, and fights back. So, it doesn't, so it's, it doesn't immediately die out. But, it's slowly, but slowly, Pavlov tends to gain over time against tit-for-tat with, with forgiveness. Pa- Pavlov is a very simple, doesn't even have memory of past things, doesn't keep track of what the other bot did to it two moves ago, whatever. But... It tries to capitalize on opportunities to take advantage of another bot, right. and that's and that kind of works. It doesn't work against hardcore tit for tat, no forgiveness ever. But hardcore tit for tat, no forgiveness ever tends to get locked into too much fighting. It's too it's too tough. It fights too much. You get something nice wins, but nice is a pushover. How do you get out of this sort of? And you have a triangle uh, or rock paper scissors kind of thing. What actually beats all of them in in most environments is if you have a bot that has one more kind of memory, which is something that's like a norm, Mm. something that's like, I I could keep track of not only how I was treated in the last round, but whether I was in good standing or not. Namely, if you attacked me, did you attack me after I attacked? As in, was I punished for wrongdoing? Or did you attack me after I did after I cooperated? In which case, you are an aggressor, and at the, retaliate against against aggressors and don't retaliate against take my lumps when punished appropriately. What they call a contrite strategy. What? Even if um, you get attacked by accident and then the person yeah. attacks back, you won't then attack them next time because because it makes sense that they did that. It ends the feud if depending on what. It itself did, and this is and this just is better, and this is a difference between this is a qualitative difference between let's say vendetta, where they hit me, I hit them, they hit me, I hit them, we hit for it forever, forgiveness, we're sick of h- hitting each other, let's bury the hatchet, and a primitive non-state version of law, where you don't necessarily th- these are bo- th- th- these there is no central bot that is different from any of the other bots, but they do it. So this is a, this is an this is anarchist what David system. Freeman calls feud law. This is feud law. They can't, they do keep track of what happened. They don't have a, they don't have a king. There is no king bot, but they do keep track of what happened and they do treat a retaliation against an offense as different than an offense. And that gives you an actual sort of empirical justification for why you would need a norm as opposed to merely having a preference or merely or merely doing something like tit for tat or retaliating against stuff like there there's an actual at value add to having a distinction between the line that you 
between this side, between the right and the wrong side of the line. I don't know. This was partly in response to Ben, you asking about how to deal with integrity violations in society, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does that tell me how to deal with a particular person, a particular like real world integrity violation? Not so much. Because there's a lot of stuff where I do find my I do find myself in the world without a norm. Of I can tell, I can I know what you did. I can think of things that would be better than it. I can think of things that would be worse than it. I'm not sure what you did warrants as a response. Right. There's a lot of cases where I don't know that, and where people argue about that, and it's like we and it's become harder because I think. It does feel like the world has become more fragmented and different people are living by different norms and moving between communities a lot and code switching between different communities. And so is what you did bad by what standard? There's more people aware that different worlds are going to have different standards, I think. I think it was easier to just assume, just be normal. What's normal now? I don't know. That's right. Like we live in a pretty multicultural society. We live, yeah, and and not just on traditional dem- demographic totally, ne- right. grounds. Like it like, could mean, I don't know, that if I'm hanging out with the hippies, it's different than I'm in a business context. It's different from if I'm hanging out yeah. with a bunch of homeschool moms. Yeah. And is this kind of a claim? Is this a lie? Is it fraud? Is it exaggeration? Is it putting mm. your best foot forward? It's like a Russell complication of... Yeah. It's, it's not that there's... It's not that there's no right answer here, but it is that a lot of actual individual cases, I don't know where to draw those lines and like how to treat And it may depend on where you are. Do people understand, how literally do people take these kinds of statements? What, mm-hmm. are they, what are they leaning on and how heavily are they leaning on it? And people really want this to be easy, but I don't find it easy. And I think it might actually not be easy. Yeah. Seems right. But, but yeah, makes a lot of sense. It tracks with what one of our earlier guests was speaking totally. about, Ben Weinstein, who had similar points about shouldn't necessarily assume that learning these types of rules or norms in this case are going to, that, that these will necessarily look like the kind of utilitarian calculus that it will probably be like deeply contextual in a certain way and like dependent on yeah. the environment and the actual place we find ourselves. Yeah. Oh, tra- yeah. Extrapolate these contextual things is pretty fraught and. I don't know, like maybe a best guess sometimes absent any other information, but not necessarily worth more than that. Yeah. And I really think of things, can think of things where a literal utilitarian calculus is quite what you're doing. Like, first of all, you off, people are often using more complex concepts like a lie or whatever, then that we don't try to translate it into a single bit of up and down. Even if even people who believe that in principle you could, I don't relative. I don't think I've ever seen them try to do it. When they've occasionally tried to, in a much much more constrained space, like with give well looking at papers and saying and trying to give a a utility score to things that do different things to risk of death and various kind various kinds of quality of life metrics and so on, they come up with. You can see the spreadsheet. Different person, different people came up with totally different utility calculations, and for the sake of convenience, they averaged them. But right. you've got people who work together who are pretty tight, as close a cultural match as you're hoping to get, and they're different. So this sort of makes you the 
And there's, maybe there's, something like the making the high dimensional thing into a low dimensional thing or like a one dimensional thing can magnify, can make it seem like there's a bigger difference. Yeah. It's not it's stick like, to the high dimensional. I think of it as it's not so much that I'm not against, the, that I'm against utilitarianism as that utilitarianism isn't a thing. You try, mm-hmm. if someone tries to say, let us calculate, good fucking luck. Try five people and get them to calculate. They're not, they're going to come up with radically different answers based on radically different assumptions. The exhortation to calculate is not what's doing the work there. The stuff that's doing the work is the stuff that via utilitarianism doesn't answer the question about. Our last guest, we had Ozzy going on and he, he made the case for, yeah, we need much more ambitious and better calculations, which is just tie things well, together a little for um, us. Yeah, no, by, if you're, if you actually want to salvage utilitarianism, that's what you'd have to do. Totally. Um, it's cool that someone's interested in it. Um, yeah, it feels like you don't get caught in the middle of the road there. You really need to pick a side, <laughs> either find a different system or do it much better. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not interested, if you're thinking like utilitarianism says that, <laughs> no, it doesn't say half a lot. If you want, if you were trying to go on, what does utilitarianism say? I remember that, that there was discord, there was shrimp discourse. Yeah. Is it obvious that, is it, is it obvious at a glance that shrimp don't matter? And, or the shrimp do matter. Because the there's it, an AEA cause to reduce shrimp suffering, right? I don't know. Yes. What that, but yeah, I know that's that. actually a little organization. There's a real organization to reduce shrimp suffering. Farmed shrimp apparently have their eyes removed, and this is not allegedly necessary to make tasty shrimp meat. So they're trying to agitate for that not to happen. And there's differences of opinion about whether they can feel pain and blah, blah, blah. And, And Perry thinks, obviously... Shrimp are not a big deal, and utilitarianism. And there are people, there are EAs who are like, shrimp are according to certain utilitarian utilitarian assumptions, shrimp might be the biggest deal because there's so um, many of them. Because there are so many of them, and cards on table, shrimp are not a huge deal to me. Like, they're not. I do not see myself caring that much about shrimp. I don't see myself learning anything that would co- like learning almost anything. That would cause me to decide that shrimp are the most important thing. Do I think it's obvious they don't matter? I also hesitate to do that. I also hesitate to be like, I can see at a glance what matters morally and what doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't seem, I don't know, it doesn't seem great to me if a bunch of humans are causing a bunch of potential suffering in an unnecessary way. Yeah, maybe you want to avoid that. I certainly don't think that the existence of an organization dedicated to something you don't think is a big deal is a big deal. It gets a little more complicated, I think, at least to some people, if depending on how people relate to EA, if there's some sort of implicit claim that we might be doing the best possible thing. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, certainly, because I think if my guess is if it were framed as, look, I'm just, this is my personal hobby, then people would be more like, okay, that's weird, interesting. Yeah. And that part of what makes it contentious is the, and it's in some objective sense, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. This is where morality is so messy to me. Like, I'm sure I am aware there are people who disagree who are like, no, I actually know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. I do think that there's a thing where once, where you certainly paint a target on your back as soon as you say you're doing the best thing in the world. You have, and maybe you should, because once, once you're trying to say that you're doing the best thing in the world and that this is the most important thing and that takes priority over everything else, then it's on you to show that. 
and to be convincing. And then, and it's natural for people to say, are you sure? And there is some converse here where the way you put that, I think is correct. And I'm also like, yeah, if you are trying to do the best thing in the world, you need to explore each hypothesis for what the best could be. So maybe in fact, we need many more shrimp welfare projects. I don't know. It seems like there are many hypotheses for what the best thing could be. And yeah. there should be many other groups doing that. Yeah. I'm sympathetic to scale sensitivity in AI. I'm sympathetic to the idea that to some extent, you pick your projects by does it matter? Does it matter? Mm -hmm. And one aspect of does it matter is does it matter to a lot of people? I'm going to leave aside animal welfare because that's because that's a whole other can of worms. But even in my own life, I do think about things of, or I think about the excitingness or the impact or how interested I am in projects in part with reference to scale. And like, I think if you, and I think that's pretty much fine, but, and there is a, there, uh, there is a sense in which like we were talking earlier about what do you think would make the biggest difference in, in policy and like housing, why housing? Because I've seen, I because I've seen estimates of how much of the economy is spent on housing, or how much of the budget is spent on housing, or it's a quantitative argument, or how much of income inequality is driven by the most expensive housing getting more expensive, or and there's a quantitative argument that oh, if you rank stuff that people spend money on, some of the the most of it that is being that is extra resources being spent on the same on the same goods that aren't getting any better. Is being put into into housing, and that's very slightly utilitarian. Ask, I'm not mm. saying size doesn't matter. You're into um, scope sensitivity, even yeah, if yeah, yes, scope and size and how much money, how many people. These, these these things are part of the calculation. I think the the difficulty comes from taking that taking a motivating assumption, or taking a motivating example, taking something that you really are doing, and going from hoping that it might be a theory to saying it is a theory, a general, a generalization that one can make is that's where things get, get shady. Yeah. If people didn't, but then again, I think the motivating thing behind GiveWell before the, before EA was a thing was, was Holden's discovery that he's a hedge fund guy. He wanted to give some money to charity as you do, he started to investigate it the way he would investigate an investment. And then he realized that the quality of due diligence that he was accustomed to doing was unknown in the nonprofit world. Mm. That being Bridgewater, being a Bridgewater guy for giving his money to the poor made him ahead of the state of the art. And that motivating insight makes a lot of sense to me as a thing to want to expand on. I don't think he was trying to do the best thing with his everything. I think he was doing, trying to do a good thing by his lights and noticing that there is a, a sector of the world that is incompetent at something he knew how to do. Um, and I think if, if there had been a continued, it, if you follow that angle, you go, to, you go down, there's some perverse incentive in nonprofit land. You may go down the direction of doing of taking inspiration from the randomistas and wanting higher standards Sorry, and like the randomistas, the do experiments on international development oh, yeah, crowd, yeah. and which is developed pretty much independently of EA, despite some people trying to take credit for it. But it's, but that whole thing makes sense. And it doesn't lead you 
to the shrimp stuff or the animal stuff or the AI stuff. It just It's just a please bring some data and stop sucking, much narrower thing. And it also doesn't give you the Peter Singer angle, which is also global development, but is is a moral utilitarian altruist angle of you're not giving anything, you should be giving something. And that's also what gets people to be, that's where you get the, the various angles of anti-EA discourse of are you pushing college students to commit large percentages of their earnings before they really know what they're getting into, that kind of thing. That comes from the Peter Singer angle, not from the gosh, nonprofits suck angle. The gosh, nonprofits suck angle is almost harmless, but probably is the movement. Also, sorry, I, this is a little bit of a topic change, but I just remembered one more thing I wanted to ask you about explicitly before we're done. Speaking of things that potentially affect a huge number of people, I'd love to hear your latest thoughts on the anti-aging longevity stuff. And if you have any predictions there, any like how you think AI might affect the field or what other things that I wouldn't be tracking Mm. might be about to affect the field or anything like that. Top of my head, I have great enthusiasm for a couple of the the startups that have been around for a while. BioAge was one of the first mainstream biotech startups that was trying to take on aging. Mm -hmm. And I've been impressed with their ability to stay the course. They have some stuff entering the clinic that is actually trying to deal with aging, which is a lot to ask from an aging startup. And I can explain why for a moment. And the thing is that aging is not an indication per the FDA. People age at the, at the at people age one year per year, so they need to find something that they are going to say their drug does. And the most common thing is to pick some disease, um, which they, they can claim to investors, claim to the world, is on track to is related to the overall phenomenon of aging and age related disease. Which are um, many of them, right? There are many, but. Sometimes I think that I think that's just not the case. Sometimes I think so. Let's talk about cancer, for example. Cancer is an age-related disease. The biggest risk factor for every kind of cancer. It's not smoking. Smoking is a big deal. It's age. The overall physiological changes of aging predispose to cancer. So, yeah, you could if you did something about aging, you would probably not only treat but prevent cancer. On the other hand, cancer is a crazy easy mode for drug development because mm. untreated cancer almost always kills you. People, the risk benefit trade-off for taking a cancer drug is very slanted in favor of, of taking it. And chemo drugs are horrible. And if you're talking about something that would one day be an anti-aging approach, that would necessarily have to be something that like every 50-year-old does, and then they don't keep getting worse as they get older. So Um, you're saying the problem with cancer is that, yes, aging would fix cancer, but there are much easier ways to target cancer that are not good anti-aging strategies at all. Giving someone chemotherapy is like absolutely an anti-aging strategy. Yeah, it's hard enough to get a good, to get any drug through trial. So if you're going after cancer, you're probably going to get you can't prob- the incentives, the natural pathway is to do something that will never be an aging drug. This is true for a lot of things. Sometimes they talk about progeria, like early aging, dis- accelerated aging genetic disorders. And those are awful for the people who have them. And you develop a drug that does something about that tiny rare disease. And those poor kids, more of them are going to survive to adulthood. That would be great. 
it's not really that, it's not really very much like human typical aging, aging yeah. typical aging in older adults. So I think what you're going to get out of those programs is a progeria drug, not an aging drug. Do you think it would make a big difference if the FDA said that aging is a specific thing that people can target? How though? How? That's the question. What do you mean how? Like they could, I guess what I was imagining. Why do you, how do you measure how little, how, le- how much less you aged after a trial? What you're going to do, what a lot of people want is a biomarker. A lot of people um, you could use a basket have, of biomarkers, maybe. Yeah, and those are gameable as shit. Yeah, okay. I looked through a bunch of them at one time, and the best of them, there are a couple that are very predictive of mortality because there's just a very strong signal that when you're about to die of a lot of things, that biomarker goes up. Uh, apart from those. The best predictor of how long it is, it, how long, how long away, how far away death is for you, is is our frailty indices. Very simple things like can you get up from your seat without using your hands, or a six-minute walk test, or sometimes a basket of these. I see. Functional physical performance measures. These things are not a big deal for us at our age, but like when you're 80, there are 80-year-olds who can get up from their seat without using their hands, and there are ones who don't, and that makes a big difference. I see. And you know, when people talk about, I have a methylation score, methylation score, and I'm, I've got, I have a drug that improves the computed age score or the age biomarker or whatever to that of a younger person or a younger mouse. I'm like, call me when your score is as good as frailty. Yeah, I see. Mm-hmm. Call me when it's as good as looking at your mouse and seeing if it can walk and run. Now, could you use frailty as your index? That actually makes sense. And... BioAge is doing that. BioAge is, take, is taking on sarcopenia, which is a wonderful invention of a word, which is loss of muscle mass with age. Okay. In the 80s, somebody, some physician, I forget his name right now, said that we need to give this a name and we need to call it a disease and we need to take it seriously because it's why granny dies when she falls and you don't. It's not trivial. It's not. And so BioAge is working on a, a sarcopenia drug. And the great thing about a sarcopenia drug that you're testing on older adults who have nothing wrong with them except frailty is that you can imagine the entire population in that neck of the woods taking that drug and you have to meet the safety standards that are appropriate to someone who isn't going to die in a month no matter what you do. Whenever somebody has something that they don't have a, that, that's a long shot if it'll work and it's side effect heavy, they like test it on pan- stage four pancreatic cancer or glioblastoma, mm. those people are going to die. That's a really fun, exciting trial where you might be able to see some results over a terrible baseline. But that's not what we want to see for aging. Or an, a, another good target is older people are more susceptible to infectious disease. So mm. BioAge did a trial of something of an immunostimulant that reduces the risk of getting COVID at the elderly. And the nice thing is that should probably generalize. It should probably not just reduce your risk of getting COVID or the severity of COVID. It should reduce the severity of other respiratory tract infections, which are a major killer. This is actually taking a, a dent out of deaths from old age. Matters to actual elderly people and not some weird-ass sub, subpopulation. Hey. The other thing that's really cool is loyal. And they're doing... Oh, this uh, with the dogs, right? The yeah. dog. And they're doing... Yeah. Lifespan. Lifespan. The actual thing one cares about also helps, yeah. but but lifespan is very hard to gain. Then there and they can do it faster because it's dogs. 
Do you expect the kind of treatments in dogs to apply to humans? I know there's been a lot of criticisms of mouse study results. Oh, that's very different. Okay. Uh, so the fuckery in mouse, mice goes far beyond them being a different species than us. Okay. Some of it is due to that. But some it's of also, it it's is. not wild type mice. Is this part of the problem? Mouse studies. Let me give, me, give you my mouse rant. First <laughs> of all, they're inbred mice of particular strains. They have been bred to reproduce early for our convenience, which isn't great for them. They, so they're very, so they're, it also makes them essentially bred to get cancer, like gangbusters. They are kept often in isolation without exercise wheels. They are basically in solitary confinement. Sometimes they're multiply housed, but they're fed mouse chow, which is bad for them. They are kept at cold temperatures, which also makes them get cancer all the time. And with all of that, when we test diseases, we don't wait for them to get a disease, the same disease. Sometimes they don't even get the same disease as humans. We give them what they call a mouse model of the disease, which is usually not that. When we say we tested a cancer drug on, on, on this cancer in mice, that mouse didn't get, that, get old and get that kind of tumor in that part of their body. That was implanted in them, mm. which means the rest of them is healthy. Just in a very rough sense, all the things that go that get fucked up along the way of you actually of an animal developing cancer naturally have not gotten fucked up in that mice. It's easy mode. It's easier to cure an implanted tumor. Mouse model of Parkinson's. That mouse didn't get old and develop motor symptoms. That mouse was poisoned with a drug called MPTP that gives them mm. Parkinson's-like symptoms, symptoms that mess up some of the cells that are destroyed by actual Parkinson's disease, but not all of them. So. It is less severe and less complex in general to produce a mouse model of the disease than the actual disease when a human or an animal gets it naturally. Or something they, like dog lifespan. This is like a real non-artificial thing where people- This is a real test. These are companion animals. They are somebody's pets. They are yeah. not kept in a bizarre environment. They are not bred for the sole purpose of being lab animals. They have- whatever unhealthy lifestyles that probably that like people have, but not the incredibly bizarre, unhealthy hell world of being a lab animal. And you're looking at lifespan, which is really hard to game. You're, if a dog is dead, you can't really say it's alive. And they're going to have any, a somewhat easier time with approval because it's not humans. So they can get out there faster. Doesn't mean it'll work in humans. There is a body size lifespan relationship across species. Bigger things tend to live longer, more case-selected, as in fewer babies later, bigger body, that whole thing tends to go with longer mm -hmm. life. Humans are about as case-selected as you can get, and a bit more so than dogs. So any kind of intervention that pushes you along an axis that humans are already at the far end of, you would expect less of. And, that makes and sense. Many kinds, and the couple of lifespan extending interventions that work across species, like caloric restriction, that's like really well replicated, the longer lived the species, the smaller percent of their lifespan, caloric restriction will give them over baseline. It'll make a mouse live 30% longer. It'll like double the lifespan of a fly or a worm or more sometimes. But a human, but a monkey, depending on the study, will give you negligible to zero on lifespan though various other metri metrics of health will be a bit better. And I bet it also doesn't 
make a human live longer, which is great because it's really not fun. I think one thing that I've been thinking a little bit about too, but I keep bringing back to that essay that you referenced about reality having a surprising amount of detail. Obviously, it ties into some of your concepts around morality. It's like something like a deep appreciation for the degree of complexity of the world and trying to reject some of this simple like armchair theorizing as being some like connecting thread. I'm not sure if like... yeah, like, yeah, I don't I know that. if you have a sense of your worldview, but that's just, I'm kind yeah. of capturing. Yeah, so I, I think of it as there's people who are, so I'm an, I am an armchair theorist. I am a, I write, I talk, I have opinions. And <laughs> I am acutely sympathetic to people who are like, don't, shut up, get, <laughs> get shit done. Those, right. who, those, who, those who know don't talk and you don't know shit, you ain't shit. I'm acutely sympathetic to this. Uh, yeah, you're and, pro you know, people pontificating if they want to. And I like to pontificate, but I also want to make it, I kind of want to try to make it not terrible. I want to have a responsiveness to the critique of, but it doesn't work. Mm. Or, but that has nothing to do with real life. Or I, I, I want to be cautious about that sort of thing. And yeah, life gets in the way of, of what you may think. And you're wrong a lot. No, really, you're wrong a lot. If you don't think you're wrong a lot, try a prediction market. See and try bet, try betting on manifold markets and see what your track record is like. And it's mm. humbling. I do, and I'm I'm not God's gift to prediction markets. And that's where we're at. And I think I think if people were calibrated, if you actually put yourself to the to if you try the same tests on everything that you would and not just and not just turn the tough tests on other people and the easy ones on yourself. You would have to, everybody, it all comes out to, nor, turn to normality, but you wind up, I still have opinions, but they're, I really do have a sense that a lot of them are going to be wrong. And I accept the ones that I've really had a lot of evidence of and I really have a lot of experience with. And yeah, you wind up using a lot more words to express it than the shut up people <laughs> and hopefully learn a bit more. And I think you can sometimes do better than the shut up, nobody knows shit people. You can know more than that, but it's a fairly valid critique. And I think it's a critique that people often don't listen to once they are in the world of they blog, they write, they're on podcasts, they're, they're opinion people. But you do want to keep in mind. Yeah, thanks. That makes sense. And I think, Ben, that's a pretty good, pretty good thread that has been running through a lot of this that you managed to name. And I think we're about out of time, but thank you so much for coming on. I definitely think yes, I learned you, a lot of concrete things and again i'm surprised i think it's a mistake you haven't been on other podcasts yet so i i think podcasters I, I, enjoy, I enjoy podcasts this is fun yeah. we're happy to with discover you, with at least. all right cool <laughs> that too all right yeah yeah so thanks okay, for coming great. on and thanks so much where can people find you on the internet anything you want to link to in the show notes sure yeah i have a Substack. it's just my name.com cool awesome. we'll, we'll make sure to link. link that all right cool thank you I also right, recommend Sarah as a good Twitter follow if anyone is on Twitter. True. All right, cool. Thanks. See you. Bye.